able to, I do encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Colossians 3 as we walk through this passage this morning. Beloved saints in Christ, when a person is truly converted, change happens. And why does that change happen? Because the Holy Spirit now lives in your heart. And because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, you begin to see things in yourselves that are wrong, that need changing, things that perhaps you found exciting before, you find not fulfilling as much. And so, say for instance, the music you might have listened to before conversion, the places you went to, the people you associated with, you begin to see these things really as a, a hindrance to holiness. And you begin to make more of an effort to, to clean up your life, your language, your lifestyle, and taking the Lord's name in vain around you, or even if you should slip and do it, now vexes your soul. And perhaps as you hear this this morning, you think to yourself, well, you know, personally and honestly, I, I don't see as much of that as I ought to. But take comfort to remember that we are all a work of progress. We are all in the process of sanctification. The, the point of Paul here is that we are no longer as believers to be content with our sins. They ought to be change. We might even say that change is evidence that we truly are converted. And as we begin to live the Christian life with the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to desire and pursue change in our lives. And we, we desire to become more Christ-like. And that's ultimately what Paul is talking about in these verses. And he writes these uh, words originally, we have to realize, to the church, to Christians in Colossae. And in chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them saints and faithful brethren, he speaks of faith, of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. And so he's not questioning their conversion as such. He's just reminding them that when you are in Christ, when you are converted, there need to, needs to be change in your lives. We are to rid ourselves of all the old habits, all the old vices of the old sinful nature. And he uses two images here in this passage in verses uh, 5 through 11 of how these uh, of the destruction of the old sinful nature and the old vices. He says that we must put them to death, which means to destroy them more and more. And then he talks about putting them away. And the, the Greek actually pictures taking off the old sinful habits, much as you would strip off clothes that no longer fit or are worn out or uh, dirty. Of course we should. We have already been raised with Christ, as we heard in verse 1. We have already put on the new self, as we heard in verse 10. Why would we want to cling to the habits and the vices of the old, dead us? Before we get into this text here, I just want to draw our attention, especially boys and girls, to the word therefore. You listen to how the, the Apostle Paul says it. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. When we hear that word, we have to take special note of that word. It means that Paul is applying what he has said before. It's Paul's way of saying, well, now that I've explained all of this to you, this is what it calls you to. Well, what has he told us? 
Well, in verses 1 to 4, we hear, uh, we, we hear that we have been raised with Christ. We have heard that our lives are now hidden with Christ as he sits at the right hand of God the Father until he comes again. We're told in the first four verses that we have access to Christ and his power continually and that he nourishes and feeds and guards and guides his church from his exalted and majestic position at the right hand of the heavenly majesty. And we need to keep this in mind. This is important. And this is why we point to the therefore as we, continue, as we consider the teachings here because it's a reminder that we cannot make any change in ourselves, we cannot see any spiritual progress in ourselves apart from Christ. And so our theme this morning as we look at Colossians 3 verses 5 to 11 is this, Christ calls us believers to divest ourselves of our former vices. And boys and girls, the word divest simply means to, to cast off, discard, strip off, Christ calls us to, uh, as believers to divest ourselves of our former vices. And we'll see two reasons why we need to do this. First of all, because of who we were. And secondly, because of who we are. But we hear Christ's call to divest ourselves of our former vices in the first place because of who we were. Listen again to verses 5 through 9a. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And we'll stop there for now. Now, here's a very humbling truth about the Colossian Christians, and by implication us, Paul reminds them and us that these sins, these vices, these old sinful habits that he lists here are things that they used to walk in, that they used to indulge in. This is who they were before conversion. Apart from God's grace, they were drawn to and indulged in all of these vices in thought, word, and deed without conscience, without remorse. They were rebellious and vile before the true and living God, who is a holy God. And Paul speaks of them in chapter 1, verse 21, as once alienated, and this is true for us as well, too, before conversion. At one time, we were alienated and enemies of God by our wicked works. In chapter 2, verse 13, he speaks of them as being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of their hearts. But now they were converted. Their status had changed. In chapter 2, Paul reminds them that their old sinful nature had been crucified with Christ when they were united to him. In Christ, sin has been overthrown. Its power and dominion over us has been broken. So the question is, what now? And Paul exhorts them, in light of who they were, in verse 5, beginning at verse 5, to put to death what is earthly in you, what is remaining, because we still live in these fleshly bodies. We still have those inclinations to either indulge in sin, to keep them and protect them as pet sins, or to blatantly 
sin against the Lord our God. And so Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Literally, it says from the Greek, put to death the members upon the earth. And Paul uses that kind of language, as he often does. He, he uses the terms body, members, flesh, nature, uses them interchangeably. Here he's, he's talking about the struggle the converted person is engaged in with their old sinful nature. And he says, put to death your members upon the earth. Members here refers to this body of sin, the practices and attitudes to which we were devoted before conversion. And, and in this case, Paul uses the body and the parts of the body that are used for sin to equate it with the sins themselves. Well, what are these sins of the, of, of, the, of the earthly nature? What are these practices and habits and urges that we need to be putting to death? Well, he mentions them. Sexual immorality, passion, uncleanness, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. These are things the Colossian Christians engaged in freely before conversion. It was the fruit of their old sinful nature as well as living in that pagan culture. But now Christ commands them to discard these old sinful habits like dirty clothes, dirty habits like sexual immorality. And the word in the Greek refers to any kind of unlawful sexual relations. And so what this would cover adultery and fornication. It's a reminder that sexual relations are to be celebrated and enjoyed only in the context of Christian marriage. Regardless of what the culture and television and movies portray it at, biblically, it's only to be enjoyed in the context of Christian marriage. Any kind of sexual immorality is to be put to death in our lives. And then he mentions uncleanness or impurity. This refers to any kind of moral evil, any kind of filthiness, abominable sexual sins that the fallen human mind conceives of. And so sometimes you hear of certain sexual sins that make you cringe, like incest, bestiality, viewing lewd images, pornography, homosexuality, prostitution, pedophilia, any kind of perversion would come under the umbrella of this Greek word. And this too must be cast off and put to death. The next vice in Paul's hit list is passion or lust, by which he means uncontrolled cravings. And so to be spoken of as a person who is promiscuous, who lives wildly, that's not for the Christian. Evil desire is similar in that it describes the unlawful longings that dominate a person. It includes sexual desires in which a person sets his mind to accomplish an evil end. Classic example would be David, of course, who knew, he found out that Bathsheba was married, and yet he didn't even try to fight against the desire to have her. And so, same thing applies to us. We're not to actively pursue someone or something for personal gratification. We're not to be committed to making these sins come true in our lives. In other words, this sin is to be cast off. And the next vice on the list is covetousness. 
And it's interesting that Paul equates this with idolatry. And here's why. Because the sin of covetousness is that it reflects the heart's trust and love for material things to the point where you worship these things. And so Paul equates it with idolatry, covetousness, sinful desire. These are all sins that belong to the old nature. And they are not what characterize or ought to characterize the children of God. We are called to walk in purity and godliness. It's bad enough that before conversion we indulge in these things, but now we must put these vices to death, like a worn-out set of clothes or out-of-style clothes. Christians must cast them off. Things like anger, he goes on to say, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language from our mouths. The first two words, anger and wrath, are similar, and together they condemn the kind of anger which flares up in an instant and smolders. You might know the kind of person we're talking about here. You might be that kind of person who has a a volatile temper. Somebody would say a volcanic temper. You people walk on eggshells around you because they say the wrong thing to you. Kapow! You, You explode in anger and then you just smolder and everybody feels your wrath. This is something that should be dying away, being cast off in the Christian life. Malice is also to be cast off as improper clothing for God's people. And the word refers to the deliberate intention to harm someone. You set your mind to hurting, harming someone. A good example, perhaps, is Esau in his relationship with his brother Jacob. And Esau, of course, boys and girls remember, was tricked out of his birthright by his brother Jacob. And what did Esau uh, determine to do? You read about this in Genesis 27. He determined to kill his brother. He said, as soon as my father is dead, I'm going to take his life. This was vengeance for what Jacob had done to him. Well, this kind of malice is condemned for the children of God. And if we catch ourselves plotting evil, conniving against people, planning our neighbor's downfall, relishing their hurt, these are things we need to be repenting of in the Christian life. Paul also mentions slander. And slander is the attempt to dirty someone's name to damage their reputation by the way we speak of them. Even the the courts of law recognize this. They call it defamation of character, and you can actually be sued for that and charged for it. This is an old vice that we too must cast off, as we should obscene talk or filthy language. So what does that include? Dirty jokes, innuendo, curse words, talking about the opposite sex in an inappropriate manner. The Christian's mouth, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, is to be sanctified unto the praise of God and the building up of our neighbor. We're not to be using our tongues, our sanctified tongues, to indulge in this kind of um, illicit and wicked kind of language. And the final vice that Paul mentions here in verse 9 which, by the way, is not by any means an exhaustive list, but it gives us an idea of the things that we still will struggle with as Christians even after conversion. And the final vice that he mentions here in verse 9 is lying to one another. Lying to one another. We ought not to lie to each other. He's not suggesting here, by the way, that we can lie to other people 
outsiders, unbelievers. Lying is never good. What his point is, is that in our regular contact with each other, with God's covenant people, we are to speak the truth in love to each other. Why is that listed here? And why is it continually mentioned in the Bible as a sin that is an abomination for us as God's people? Because it is a sin that reflects our old sonship. When we were children of the devil, and the devil, boys and girls, is called what? The father of lies. And so we don't want to live according to our old father. We want to live according to the one who has adopted us and embraced us as his own, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very embodiment of truth, who is called the way, the truth, and the life. And so these sins, and many more, we might say anything that belongs to the old sinful nature, must be divested, they must be discarded, they must be cast off in the Christian life. And here's some additional incentive to strive against these sins. If, if perhaps our attitude is, okay, but maybe one day we'll get to it when we get to it. Here's an additional incentive, verse 6. Paul writes, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Well, the wrath of God is coming. Upon who? Who, who, does Paul, uh, who is Paul referring to here? Well, he's referring to those who continue to indulge the sinful nature and who continue to hold on to their sins as pet sins. He's referring to those who continue to choose a course of life that defies the law of God and the will of God. He's referring to those, and these are the ones upon whom the wrath of God will come. To borrow the language of Romans 1, Paul is talking here about those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. He's talking about those who willfully deny the existence of, God's, uh, of God and his power and his love and his salvation, whether that be special revelation or general revelation. They deny the existence of of God. And these, whom the Bible calls in other places the enemies of God, left unconverted, they will inherit the wrath of God in this life already and in the life to come, eternal torment in hell. And so let us be warned, covenant people of God, turn from sin, turn to Christ. Remember that every time the word is preached from this pulpit, as we come together as God's people, God is holding out untiring hands to you and to me, calling us to repent of our sins and, and come and seek shelter under his care. And so let's be reminded, as we are warned here this morning, who do not want the wrath of God to come upon us, let us come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And beloved of God, as those converted, let's remember as well that were it not for the grace of God, we too would be included here in those upon whom the wrath of God will come. But let us rejoice and be thankful that in his mercy he has saved us through the atoning death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has given us faith to believe in Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And now that we have been adopted in Christ, let us be then continually making every effort in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to be discarding 
the former sins of our lives, putting them to death, hating them and seeking their destruction, no longer being content with these sins or defending them or indulging in them. Our status has changed, you see. We used to walk. I mean, Paul can say the same thing to us today as converts. We used to walk in these ways. Before conversion, it may never have even bothered us to commit all the sins that are mentioned here. And we're cautioned here by Paul because of who we were. But as Christ commands us to divest, that is to cast off our former vices, we also see in the second place that we're to do so because of who we are. Listen again to verses 9b to verse 11. Paul writes, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so a change has taken place. That's what we're reminded of here. We have put off the old self. Well, what does that mean exactly? What is that old self? Well, the old self is the sinful nature that we are born with, that we have inherited from our parents, Adam and Eve. David understood this. He described himself in Psalm 51 as sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the womb, we are sinful in the sight of God. The old self that Paul talks here about is the sinful nature with all its habits and thoughts and emotions and motives. Our entire being was corrupted. But now, like a filthy garment, the old self, the old nature, has been stripped off, Paul tells us, with its practices. And these practices, of course, are the byproducts of the old sinful nature, the old sinful nature being uh, like a wellspring from which all kinds of disobedient living against God bursts forth. The old nature, we have to remember, is not in any sense converted. The old nature is not converted. It cannot be. It's not renewed. It will not be. Like a worn-out gasket, the old nature, the old self, must be replaced by the new nature. And that is what is in accomplished in Christ Jesus. Since power has been destroyed, it has been dethroned from its reign, and the Holy Spirit has come to live in our hearts. And so when exactly did this happen, by the way? Listen to what Paul says back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God and ra who raised him from the dead. And Paul reminds us here that in our baptism, the old sinful nature, that's when the old sinful nature was put off. Christian baptism, he reminds us here, far exceeds circumcision. In the Old Testament rite, a small portion of flesh was removed and discarded. In New Testament baptism, the entire sinful nature has been cut off. 
And so in Christ, Christians have experienced a cleansing that far surpasses circumcision. And not only have we put off the old self, we have put on the new self. We have become new people. We have taken off our old garments of unrighteousness and we have put on, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by Christ living in us, we have put on garments of righteousness and holiness. Jesus Christ, of course, is not only the author but the finisher of our faith. He is not only the, 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 the initiator of our creation, of the, of the original creation, but of the new creation in Christ. And so we have, in Christ, taken off the old Adam, and we have put on the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're being constantly renewed in knowledge according to his image. The grammar suggests a continuous growth in knowledge. The converted are being renewed continually so that more and more we may know our God, we may trust His will, we may live for Him. And so we are not the same. As believers, we are the cleansed people of God. We are continually being renewed. This is who we are. Paul refers to us in this loft, or Peter refers to us in this lofty language in his letter. He refers to us, that's you and me, as believers in Christ, as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's wonderful, isn't it? And so why are we commanded to cast off the old vices like old clothes? Because of who we are. We're new creatures in Christ. We're members of God's household. We're citizens of His kingdom, together with all who share with Him this status, and goal. In verse 11, Paul writes here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's talking here about the equality that we all possess in the sight of God when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Christ clothes us with his righteousness. We are loved equally in the sight of God, no matter what our differences may be. And, and Paul has to say this. We might wonder, what, well, why does he mention the barbarians and Scythians and Greeks and all of these things? Why does he mention that? Because of the context. Just to give you an idea of the context here uh, in which this original letter was written, uh, there were false teachers who were coming into the early churches and they were teaching the Christians that they need to go back to the ways of the Old Testament and perform all the Old Testament rites and be circumcised and keep all the laws of Moses and so on. And in the, in, he mentioned, Paul addresses this in the earlier part of this letter. The, the false teachers were telling them to, that, that they had to refrain from certain food and drink. They have to regard certain festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And Paul writes very powerfully in this letter that these were all shadows of things to come. These were all fulfilled in Christ. And so the Colossian Christians were in no way inferior to the Jews of the Old Testament. In fact, Christ, or in Christ, all believers are equal and equally loved in the sight of God. Paul reminds us here that all the social, cultural, and racial walls that divided men because of sin have no place in God's kingdom. The Jews 
may no longer look down on the Greeks and vice versa. And neither should despise the barbarians who were non-Greeks who could not speak the language or practice the culture. And so they were easy to look down upon. Paul also mentions Scythians. And the Scythians were tribes who lived around the Black Sea. They were a slave class of people who were known to be immoral and uncouth and uncultured. But even these, Paul says, having been converted to Christ, are equal in status to all Christians and are being renewed into the image of Christ. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down all the cultural, social, racial, even linguistic barriers. Slave or free, circumcised or not, poor or rich, all who are in Christ are equally in Him. There is no place of inferiority. All men and women, regardless of origin, color, language, are one in Christ. It is sin that caused the separation of the races and feelings of superiority. Christ has come and He has leveled the playing field and is renewing all those who trust in Him into His image. And so, the gospel of Christ, the house of God itself, allows no racial prejudice, no bigotry, no snobbery. There's no room for that in the house of God. Believers of all race, nation, and language are of equal value in Christ. Even males have no superiority over females as far as the divine favor of Christ goes. Now, I trust you know we're not talking here about headship in the home or in the offices of the church. We're talking about in regards to our salvation and our need for cleansing. We are one. We are equal. In Christ, we are all of equal value in God's sight. And we need to remember these things. Because, congregation, the children of God are different people. We're called to be different people. We've been cleansed of the old sinful habits and nature. And we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're now called to reflect in our daily lives the effects of that change. And we're called now to cast off the old vices because of who we were and who we are. How do we do this? Well, certainly not as the world tells us. What is the world? What, what advice does the, do the counselors of the world give us? Believe in yourself. Look deep inside yourself and find the inner strength. That's not what the Bible, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. We make changes, we cast off the old vices, not by garnering up our own courage, not by reading every self-help book or taking 12-step programs. We understand as Christians that we cannot change in our own strength and by our own efforts. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ who has secured our salvation and now sits at the right hand of the Father, who alone promises and can effect change in us. And so we come back to verse 1, as we read earlier. Seek the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And let it begin with careful self-examination and a heartfelt desire to please God and to walk in obedience and to live in ways that bring him honor 
and glory. And as we begin to yearn after these things, let us continue to look to Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, trusting in Him to be our help and our strength. Congregation, do not resist change. In our case, change is good. Do not be content with who you were. Strive now to live as who you are. Amen. Let's return to Psalm 119, and we will sing stanzas 3 and 4. <clears throat> 